Hello, and welcome to The Dirt. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. And this is our inaugural back-to-school special. Who are we schooling today? Hoaxers. Oh, yeah. We've got some convincing fakes, some extremely unconvincing fakes, some very fun theories, and some very not-fake crimes against very not-fake people that are not fun at all. Why do hoaxes work? Why, why are people so gullible, so seemingly gullible when it comes to archaeological finds that seem too good to be true or that seem to prove some wacky theory? Well, sometimes they're, they're too good to be true because the person who made them really, really knows what they're doing. A lot of it boils down to somebody wants to make money or somebody wants to believe it. And so you'll see a lot of that in what we're going to talk about today. Yeah. Is that somebody's trying to make a buck, more commonly, many, many, many bucks, or they're, they, people just really want to believe that it's true. So we're going we're gonna to cover four today. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there are many, many, many more. But this is, this, this is going to round out our roundups. And then back to regularly scheduled uh, single topic episodes. Yep, that's what we're going to be doing. One topic, and we're going to give it lots of attention. Mm-hmm. Um, but let's, um, how about I get started? How about I tell you about my first one? Yeah, and, and so just so folks know and are aware, we sort of formatted this uh, this last of our roundups in kind of a yikes sandwich. So we've got <laughs> a couple fun ones on either end, and then things get weird in the middle. So strap in. Yeah, weird and sad and high stakes. It's a roller coaster of, of human emotions. So, so it's get like ready. a high stakes sandwich. There we go. Ooh. Thank I, you. Oh. Nice. I like that. We're going to keep that one. Okay. So first up, the Cardiff Giant. Do you okay. know this one, Anna? I know the, the sketchy details, but okay. I don't know the full story. So I'm well, excited. it's going to get sketchier. <laughs> so uh, I'm going to start off with a hot take here. Uh, this one really phoned it in. I'll put up a photo of the the Cardiff Giant himself online. These are not the skilled craftspeople that I talked about a few minutes ago, and like why people <laughs> are <laughs> like how it is quite easy to believe some things. With these, it's a bit of a, a reach, but man, did it work! Okay, so so the year was 1869 of the Common Era, and it certainly was a time to be alive in the United States. So the Industrial Revolution was giving everything a cool steampunk edge. The country was still freshly traumatized by the Civil War. And the combined forces of incredible progress and incredible horror left Americans particularly ripe for the duping. And dupe we did. So here we are, golden age of hoaxing, um, in Cardiff, New York. So that's upstate New York. Um, In 1869, two laborers named Gideon Emmons and Henry Nichols they were digging a well uh, on William Newell's farm. Well, you know, their boss was like, dig this well here. And they're like, we'll do, sir. And three feet down, they hit stone. And they cleared the, the, the soil away. And it wasn't just any stone. It was a foot, a stone foot. Uh, they did some more digging and digging and digging. And eventually they unearthed the figure of a 10 foot and some tall man. So a 10, a 10 foot stone man. And there was no reason for them to be digging there other than the fact that this guy had hired them to dig a well there. Um, and so there was this, just this giant. And a lot of people thought that the giant was an ancient predecessor of the Onondaga. 
Um, and so the Onondaga are one of the original Haudenosaunee. Um, so the five Iroquois, um, the, okay. the five federated tribes of the Iroquois. So um, very like powerful in the region um, about a hundred years before they, they still were like major political players. So, um, so people thought that this stone man had once been a, a flesh man. Yeah. Yeah. So they thought, yes. Okay. So the stone dude hypothesis. Uh, so it turns out, spoiler alert, he had been planted there a year later by the cousin of the guy who owned the farm. So George Hall hired people to make him and then he buried them. And so the idea was that the this giant was petrified. So like petrified wood. Like I don't think anything else really petrifies except vegetable material. No, um, humans sure don't. Yeah, we definitely do not petrify. But um, it's a special fossilization process. So this was not – this obviously was not a petrified person. Um, but from the initial discovery, from the time that they, they found it to the the end of the whole ordeal some two years later, uh, it was left deliberately ambiguous. Um, and people oh. went nuts – like, people went totally nuts about it. Um, they showed up by the cartload. They first paid a quarter, and then they upped the price to 50 cents. And people just, like, kept coming. They kept coming to see it uh, because they believed it. They believed that this was a petrified giant, that there was a 10-foot-tall man that had been excavated here in Cardiff, New York. Wow. Um, yeah, yeah. And the reason why they believed it is that they really, 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 really wanted to believe it was true. Because uh, it turns out George Hull, the the person behind the whole hoax, he was an atheist, but he was the kind of atheist that like, would be a jerk to people on Twitter. Um, he wasn't just like a person that didn't happen to believe in any higher deity. He was like a jerk about it. Um, and so he got an argument with somebody in 1868 where they said that the things in the Bible are true and have value. And he said, you're wrong. And he finally had enough and went home and crafted a giant and buried it as a prank because he wanted to make all of these people that believe in the Bible look foolish. Yeah. He's a jerk. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Exactly. And so, and in the, in the meantime, like he was going to earn a few bucks anyway, off of these like rubes that believe this, he picked this, this, subject he he decided that this would be the thing that he would bury because um in the book of genesis as well as in other apocryphal books of the old testament there are references to giants walking the earth and um so among these people that really wanted to believe it were people that were looking for a little literal confirmation of the text of the bible um and this is also a period of time where anthropology and archaeology is starting to develop as a as as disciplines and people and were it, it doesn't quite jive with yeah and so people were starting to get like a little freaked out about how there are all these people in the americas uh, how they all got here if the world's only four thousand years old and all life stemmed from adam and eve and they lived in like southern iraq like it it was it, yeah it was hard to reconcile those things but also during during this time in the the mid late 19th century um, there was a theory floating around anthropology, and anthropology was still a baby discipline. Um, and so there was this theory that the ten lost tribes of Israel, 
displaced during the Assyrian conquest in 722 BCE. Afterward, there were two tribes that were the ones that went into exile in Babylon. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the other ones, sort of, it's more like nine and a half lost tribes of Israel, but the the rest of them, uh, where'd they go? Well, obviously, they went to Central America. Oh. They got on their boats that they invented then, and they went to Central America from the Eastern Mediterranean to Central America. When they got there, they uh, developed and devised these very successful, very powerful empires in Central and South America. Um, so they were the Aztecs, the Inca, and the Maya, and they also, and then they moved up, and they were the mound builders of Cahokia and elsewhere. And this theory um, also informs um, some of the like early ideas of Joseph Smith and the development of Mormon cosmology. This because, is tying so many things together. Yeah, yeah. And so this is um, okay. So where did all of these Central and South American Jews go? Uh, well, eventually they um, they left. They just and, left. Yeah, and then the people that followed in their footsteps were the primitive Native American tribes that at this point in history were being relocated and exterminated. Ah. So they so it's the same thing as um, you see with um, British archaeology in the Indian subcontinent, where it's like oh, like these great Harappan Indus civilizations, they obviously left because they were Aryans and you were the ones who did all the labor and without them you fell apart because you need somebody to like control you and keep you in line. Oh, yikes. And so that's the idea that's sort of how it reinforces colonial and imperial ideology. And so it's the same thing here. it's, It's an analogous thing here where the Native Americans had to get here somehow. This is how they got here. But this is like they had a like sort of weird. We arrived during the Dark Ages. But you see in early um, studies of like art history and ethnology, they describe, quote, Semitic features in Mayan art, um, <laughs> which like they're talking about their noses. And yeah. like it's yep. it. And so it's it's a real it's a real bummer. Um, and, <laughs> and this is nervous laughter. I'm yeah, not, yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's horrible. And so there's this like, bi- there's all this bending over backwards to prove that not only were the Mesoamerican empires Israelite, but in no way was it possible that the per- people currently being subjected to a genocide in the United States could have any connection to such impressive monumental architecture, art, science, and civilization. Because it's not that's a because tough we're the because we're the ones that have the civilization, so Yikes. yeah. So long story short, for some folks, it was much easier to believe that a poorly carved chunk of gypsum in some guy's field was an ancient giant than it was to believe Native Americans were human beings. That's what a lot of it was. But did somebody say something about dehumanizing spectacles that yield profits? <laughs> Sound like a job for P.T. Barnum. So enter the one thing that could possibly make this story tougher, (laughs) P.T. Barnum, who um, had, like, he created his own empire, uh, profiting off of the, like, suffering and exploitation of others. Um, Yeah, but that's that's not our podcast. (laughs) Yeah, no. He offered uh, $50,000 for the giant, which is, like... In eighteen sixty something dollars. Yeah, $1869, which is, like, close to a million dollars now. 
So many um, dollars. Yeah, because he was making so much money. Um, but at this point, the giant was on tour, and he was raking in money hand over fist uh, because Hall, the guy who owned him, I suppose, who made him, um, he sold he sold him to a group of businessmen uh, for twenty three k, which is like four hundred fifty thousand dollars today. Jeez. So he made a ton of money, and so P.T. Barnum wanted to buy the guy out, like wanted to buy out these businessmen who who now owned the giant. Um, but he was a golden goose, so they told him to. Yeah, so walk, they were like, on. "No way!" They're like, "No way! We're not, we're not selling this. Uh, we're making so much money off of it." And so he just made he just made a replica, and told people it was the real thing, which huh. is like power move. Um, so. It's also pretty demonstrative of of his general sense of ethics. Oh yeah, yeah. So the 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 businessman who now owned the Cardiff Giant sued him, saying that he is plagiarizing their work or something. But in December of 1869, Hull confessed that it wasn't real. Anyway, he's like, yeah, it wasn't real. Did I have to say it? And in February of 1870, the judge over the case where they sued P.T. Barnum, um, he was like, no, they're both fake and you can't fake a fake. So you don't have a case here. I could just imagine that judge being like, oh, for God's sake. Yeah. So by by 1870, it was over. So it was like a year. It was a it's year a of people going crazy about this big stone giant um, that was not a giant. And also, again, do you, are you looking at this? <laughs> at the, the, at, the picture? Yeah. There's like yeah, it's, um, good detail hmm. to his nose and his uh, genitalia. And yeah. beyond that, it's just nope. like. <laughs> Not great. <laughs> um, but that if you want to go. knew how to do two things well. <laughs> but if you want to go see him. Um, you can do that. He's on display at the Farmer's Museum in Cooperstown, New York. So he's back home um, in upstate New York. And I guess... I'm glad he was repatriated. Yeah, he was repatriated. I would like to go see him. We should, um, next time I'm out on the East Coast, we should make a little pilgrimage. Yeah, we can go see him. It, it looks like That'd the Farmer's cool. Museum looks, looks cool. Like it, I like yeah. agricultural history. Yeah, and now that we've like peeled off the bun of our yikes sandwich. <laughs> of our yikes sandwich. Time to um, get to the yikes meat. Yep. Yeah. So so what's up? What's on deck? So this is the story of the Persian princess. Oh. It's, it sounds very it sounds romantic, romantic and exciting. <laughs> I know. And it's uh it starts off that way. It it really does, and then uh takes a turn into Bummer Town. Uh it's a story of archaeology, deception. And murder? Oh. Maybe. I know. So we start off in Karachi in Pakistan. And in October of 2000, a resident of Karachi was trying to sell a mummy on the black market for the bargain price of $11 million. Um, the local police caught wind of this impending deal, and they interrogated the seller. And he told them he got the mummy from an Iranian man who supposedly found it after an earthquake and the two had agreed to sell it and split the profits. Um, so already dealing with people of questionable business tactics. Um, then the seller eventually led them to where he was storing the mummy in Baluchistan, which is a region that, that borders Iran and Afghanistan. So 
these Pakistani authorities brought the mummy to the National Museum in Karachi, where museum officials inspected the remains and the sarcophagus. So the mummy was wrapped in an Egyptian style and was in a wooden sarcophagus with cuneiform inscriptions. Oh, and it was that's the not mummy of Egyptian. A, no, it's not. The mummy uh, was female and her remains lay atop a mat coated with a mixture of wax and honey. And then um, all of this was covered by a stone slab with additional cuneiform inscriptions. So it gets weirder. The sarcophagus was covered with carvings of Ahura Mazda, a Zoroastrian deity. Mm -hmm. The The, mummy had... Well, hmm? Ahura Mazda precedes Zoroastrianism. Yeah, so he was the early Persian deity. Yeah, he was the... He was the big G for, for the uh, like the capital P Persian Empire. Yeah, um, and oh. and that definitely that that plays a part here. So uh, covered with carvings of Ahura Mazda, and the mummy had a golden crown, and mask, and a golden breastplate that had carvings incisions on it in cuneiform that that said. I am the daughter of the great King Xerxes. Oh. Mazareka, protect me. I am Radagoon. I am. So if this inscription were correct, it meant that this mummy potentially was that of a real-life Persian princess. And from the time of Xerxes, one of the most uh, renowned kings of the Persian Empire, so it would be about 2,600 years old. So yeah. this this understandably generated all of this international excitement because, uh, first of all, no remains of the Persian royal family had ever been found, and mummies aren't found in Iran. That's not a practice, a burial practice that's typically uh, practiced in that area. So if this find were genuine, it would rewrite some history. A lot of history, actually. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. A whole lot. Yeah. So you can see why why experts and and just sort of anyone tangentially in the field of archaeology uh, got really excited about this find. Yeah. And then and of here, course at this at this point in history, so around the time of of King Xerxes and that Achaemenid, um, like that dynasty, that is where um, people who identify as Persian, um, that is the start of Persianness. So this is yes. like huge, huge implications for well, exactly. not only history, but like like living Culture. people and their, yeah, their and, identities. And exactly. And this is why, of course, uh, sort of cultural affiliation and politics get involved. So this heated argument mm-hmm. soon erupted between the governments of Iran, Pakistan, and the Baluchistan province um, over who got to claim the Persian princess as their own. And so uh, even the Taliban got in on the game. Because they're fun and they super duper love archaeological artifacts. They also, yeah, as much as they love women. Yep, about the same. They they love, yeah, they they love pre-Islamic artifacts and women. Yep, that's their two things. <laughs> um, yeah, so so everyone was interested in everyone for various reasons: propaganda, cultural pride, all of this. They all wanted to lay claim to this Persian princess. So in the meantime, while all these governments were squabbling, this mummy lay under guard in the National Museum in Karachi, and she was being carefully and systematically examined by archaeologists. So first, their results were really encouraging. So uh, it was the wrapped and embalmed body of a woman, a very 
diminutive woman. She was only four feet, seven inches tall. And an X-ray of her bones, despite her small stature, showed that she was over 21 years of age at the time of her death. So um, if her identity was legitimate, she would have died around 600 BCE. And they CT scanned her body and the scan revealed that her brain and all her internal organs had all been removed and replaced with a high density material, just like in typical Egyptian mummification. Despite all these encouraging first looks, the archaeologists were very, very thorough. And so photos of the cuneiform on her golden breastplate and little snippets of the mat that her body was on and the carvings on her sarcophagus were all sent out to various experts for translating and testing and, and extra scrutiny. Here's where it starts to get weird. So the mat was carbon dated by a lab in Germany, and it was made within the last 50 years. The cuneiform on her sarcophagus and on her breastplate, the words had no word endings, and the Persian princess's name was a Greek translation yeah, of I the name. Yeah, I was going to say, like, that's Rodugane, yeah. right? Like, that's oh, Greek. Rodugane? Yeah, it's an eta at the end of it. Okay. Not Thanks. an epsilon. Gotcha. It's been a while since I, since I Greeked. Yeah, but, um, like... <laughs> Well, in any case, but, yeah, but also like Persian don't look no, like that. Yeah. <laughs> and um, that wouldn't have been the name used uh, until several centuries right. after her supposed death. Uh, and here's here's the one I love the most. Deep within the unusually large carvings on the sarcophagus, they found tracing marks from a lead pencil. Someone forgot to erase. <laughs> Rewind to a year before all of this. Uh, An Iranian middleman had mailed four photos of the Persian princess to the Metropolitan Museum of Art, and they ended up on the desk of their ancient Near Eastern expert, Oscar White Muscarella. And he's kind of a big deal, and he immediately recognized the relic for what it was, a forgery. From four photos. (laughs) From four photos. Yeah. So um, he, he flagged it as a forgery, and he basically, at this point, this was a year before the quote-unquote discovery of the Persian princess in Baluchistan. So he cut off contact with that middleman. And so they resorted back to the black market. And so we're back to the beginning. Oh, where so they the, were trying to the sell the it police, to the Met. Yeah, before before all of this, yeah, they were trying okay. to, they first went to the Met and then they were like, well, that didn't work. And then they started trying to sell it on the black market. And so forgeries are, are really not that uncommon in the antiquities business. Yeah. So... You know, people were kind of bummed out by the fact that this supposedly, you know, game-changing Persian mummy was was fake, uh, and it was a letdown, but uh, it was no cause for alarm. However, further examination of the body makes this story even crazier. They initially figured that this was a real mummy that that people had, like, gussied up and tried to make extra exciting and different to extract a higher price. But there was no doubt that it was a real mummy, a real human remains that lay within the wrappings of the Persian princess. So the archaeologists next turned to her to try and figure out what was going on there. So copies of the CT and X-ray scans that they took were sent to an expert in Egyptian mummification techniques, and he was not impressed with what he saw. In traditional Egyptian mummification, the removal of the brain is usually a delicate surgical process uh, where they uh, insert an instrument up the nose and kind of scramble the brain around, but then draw it delicately out through the nose. In this case, 
this was a hack job involving multiple broken bones. And um, moreover, whoever had removed the internal organs made the critical mistake of also removing the mummy's heart. So ancient Egyptians believed that you thought with your heart and it was, it was the seat of your, your goodness as a human person. And so it was vital to the process of getting you to the afterlife. And so it would never be removed by Egyptian embalmers. So more red flags. Right. Now we get to the super bummer. Physicians took a closer look at the middle ear. So everybody has in the human body, we have our three smallest bones in our middle ear, the the hammer, the anvil, and the stirrup, and they are held in place by these fragile little tendons and tiny ligaments that if she had truly died around 600 BC or even just a few decades ago, those would not be intact, but they were in this individual. And so this body was new. And now, so they started giving her a much more thorough look over. Um, and something else emerged, which the physicians described as significant distortion of the normal anatomy, meaning her back was broken by a blunt object, which struck her from the right. And an autopsy showed that the vertebrae in her neck veered off at 90 degrees and her spinal column had effectively been snapped in two. So, uh, they hypothesized that she had likely been hit by a car. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and instead of traditional materials, um, like natron salt, her abdominal cavity had been stuffed with table salt and baking soda. So this was enough of a reason for archaeologists to radiocarbon date the body. And the results showed that this individual had only died in 1996. So now at the very least, Pakistani police are now dealing with this ring of premeditated forgers who got together, prepared, and then stole a body, mummified it within 24 hours of her death and then tried to sell it off as an archaeological find. And then at the worst, they're dealing with murder. So this is much more of a serious crime than, than forgery. And disturbingly during the next year, uh, two more of these Persian mummies emerged on the black market. So most likely faked by the same people. So God. Yeah. So um, this story just really took a turn. Um, There is a little, a little, small tiny amount of good at the end of this story although it's it's very relative um the woman who had been passed off as an archaeological treasure and who still remains unknown and unnamed was finally laid to rest with proper muslim burial rites in early 2008 so that's the story of the persian princess wow it took so it took eight years and at this point it was 12 years after her death yeah thereabouts yep god uh wow okay would you like to um continue the oh bummer fest well i don't know if this is a bummer uh but it is it it is crimey um and also um not like is this a hoax unclear so we're moving on to hoaxes question mark huh Okay. Yeah, you got yeah, me. I yeah, am hooked. I know. So this, um, this, this all starts with uh, my own story. So back in 2008, when I was... Oh, that's where we left off. <laughs> yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. Ooh. In early 2008, I uh, went to Jerusalem um, on an externship over spring break and um, 
So I went there to to spend a week studying with a classics professor at Tel Aviv University. Okay. Uh, because I knew how to do spring break, right? Um, hey. And so while I was there, I went to the archives of the Israel Antiquities Authority, the IAA. My my host was a professor at Tel Aviv University um, named Jonathan Price. And at the time, he was working on a catalog of Latin and Greek inscriptions from the region. And so he showed me a series of ossuaries. And ossuaries are these limestone boxes with lids designed to hold skeletal remains in a secondary burial. So you have the primary burial where you like leave the body, and then a, a year later, you go back and you collect the bones and you put them in the bone box. Oh, um, okay, okay. Yeah, and so there was a – so he was showing me all of these because they have inscriptions. So they'll say such and such, son of so-and-so, and so you, it's like the, the markers. Um, and so there was a gap on the shelf. He pointed it out to me, and he said, that's the James ossuary. And I pretended that I knew what he was talking about, but I totally didn't. Um, and I asked where it was, and he started laughing, and he's like, oh, state's evidence. <laughs> and that <laughs> – is how I learned about Oded Golan and the many controversial objects that surround him. Okay. So this was like I encountered this this hole in the stacks five years into his trial. Uh, so in 2003, um, Oded Golan, who was a who is like a, a very famous and successful collector um, and dealer of antiquities, usually having to do with like biblical archaeology and biblical history. Okay. Um, he he and two colleagues were arrested and charged with 18 counts of fraud, receiving money through deception, damaging antiquities, and violations of Israeli antiquities laws. I just is 18 is just like a very important number in he, in Hebrew uh, numerology, and oh. so that makes me giggle. Oh, oh it's like fun. the it's it's high. It's the number that like represents God. Oh. Interesting. Uh, so the 18 objects that Golan and his his crew were accused of faking and selling for hundreds of thousands of dollars included a wine decanter used in um, King Solomon's temple uh -huh. um, and inscription that bears repair that describes repairs made to the temple of Jerusalem by um, Jehoash and corroborates the, the like a builder's receipt. No, it's just like. Like, yo, I'm Jehoash and I fixed this temple. Um, oh, okay. And yeah, so it cor corroborates. It's, I think it's more like um, it, it would be like more like a foundation inscription, not not like a receipt, but like an actual like monumental kind of thing, um, like a like a votive offering sort of thing. I don't know. Oh, um, okay. I don't know. But what it says in the inscription corroborates the um, second book of Kings in the Bible. Sure. Um, and and then this James ossuary that I had heard about earlier. And so this is uh, this is the ossuary in which the bones of Jesus Christ's brother, James Christ. Uh, <laughs> I don't James James Bar Joseph. <laughs> yes, yeah, J yeah, James Bar Joseph, uh, where he was buried. It was um announced in the early aughts that this was that this was out there that this existed okay um, and so it was sort of like it, it had been discovered for what it was then so the date of discovery is that um golan's and golan and his family had had kind of had come to own this in the 70s during the trial his ex-girlfriend from the 70s um had to testify 
birthday was her in a photo and that she had seen it and that it was in the 70s because there's this photo of her standing in front of a bookshelf um, and there's like all this stuff on the shelves, including uh, this ossuary. And the okay. ossuary shows the inscription and the inscription is in Aramaic. And for all our Aramaic speakers out there, it says, Yaakov bar Yosef, Ahui di Yeshua. And so Ahui is like, Ahui. Uh, yeah, and that means brother. So it says, uh, James, son of Joseph, brother of Jesus. And Yaakov is James? It's Jacob. I don't. Yeah. Okay. Apparently it's. Apparently, it's also maybe James and Jacob are the same name. I don't understand it. I don't know. I thought it was Jacob, but I don't know if it's. I don't know, but it was James. So that's okay. Yep, that's it's not the Jacob ossuary. It's the James ossuary. Yep. Um, So enter this guy, Simka Yakobovici. He is a Canadian Israeli filmmaker, documentarian, and friend of James Cameron. It seems. Uh-oh. Um, he's the host of the Naked Archaeologist, in which he is neither naked nor an archaeologist. And so the, he had a theory um, that this was a missing link, the missing link of the Talpiot tomb. And the Talpiot tomb is the tomb of Jesus's family. And so this tomb was excavated in 1980 in the neighborhood of Talpiot in Jerusalem, which is where I stayed when I was there. It's all coming together. Oh. Um, yeah. So in 1980, construction crews uncovered an entrance to a tomb cut into the limestone. So um, in this uh, second temple Herodian period, so this is between 538 BCE and 80 and 70 CE, it's a very standard for wealthy families to have these family tombs and they cut into the limestone. Um, so this, this construction crew was um, uh, setting a foundation for an apartment complex. And then the problem with trying to dig anywhere in Jerusalem. Yeah. yeah. You're going to find something. And so they, they found this. And so they brought in a team to do a rescue operation. So they like a rescue excavation. They dated it to the second temple Herodian period. Um, like King Herod Herodian. Yeah. Um, Yep, and okay, well, now I'm just <laughs> for listeners out there. Um, Look, and, I was in Jesus Christ Superstar. I know this stuff. <laughs> really? Yeah. <laughs> oh wow. <laughs> so this was this is typical. So there were about 900 similar tombs to this one found in the same area. So this was just wow, okay. This was just where wealthy Jewish families at this period had they they would have their um, family tombs. And can so I ask a question that you? Yes. You might not know. Jesus' yeah. family. Wealthy? Um, according to what I learned, no. Okay. That's okay. Because that was uh, my because Carpenter, his father was a carpenter. Right. And they, there was no room at the inn sort of thing. Yeah. And like born in a manger. Um, yeah. So right. But that's not what they're basing it off of. That's not what oh, they're okay. basing this theory off of. So um there were ten uh, 10 ossuaries excavated, but one went missing. <laughs> so one Whoops. was missing. And so this is where Yakovovici says the 10th one is the one that Oda Golan had. It's the James okay. ossuary. Okay. So he th- right. he says that's the 10th one. Even though there's a photo from the 70s where his ex-girlfriend's and, standing in front of it. And it was excavated in 1980. And like they had to like, blow out some limestone to find it. Right. So weird. But six of the ossuaries that were excavated had epigraphs on them and so epigraph means written upon so like inscriptions okay um and so on these 
you have the names. You'll usually have like a name and a nickname or a name and a parentage. Like you have you have something. And so the names included in the epigraphy was Jesus, son of Joseph. Okay. Um, Mary Omni, Maria, Yosa, and Judah, son of Jesus. So that's yeah. a heck of a coincidence. It is a heck of a coincidence. Now, um, these are really common names um, for Palestinian Jews of this era. Uh, yeah, because they're we, all together in the right, right. They're all together grouping. in the right place. Exactly. And so um, Jacobo Vici and friends assumed that Mary Omni is uh, Mary Magdalene. And so Mary Omni is just a, a form of Mary and right. like Maria. Um, and then Yosa is a nickname for Joseph. So they determined the statistical likelihood that this is the tomb of the New Testament family. What it ended up yielding was really, really high odds that this is the likelihood that this was Jesus's family's tomb. Crazy. Um, right. But it's so apart from just the math of it, which I don't understand well enough to like take issue with, um, this is off of names on ossuaries, not names in other things like names in like tax records or piety or things. Um, also this, this Judah son of Jesus was not included in the statistical calculations because, um, Jesus it would mess is everything not said up. to have children. <laughs> yeah. And so Mary Omni is not Magdalene. So it's not Mary Magdalene. It doesn't have to be Mary Magdalene. It could just be Mary Omni. Um, and so they multiply the probability of each name except Judah. Um, and so it, they determined that this was almost definitely Jesus' family tomb with his mom, his brother, Mrs. Jesus, and some rando named Judah. But this is why the James Ossuary became such a huge deal is because it was sort of the linchpin in this this argument that this is where the New Testament family was buried. Yeah. Uh, and so all of this stuff was pulled into the trial. The trial lasted for 10 years. Yeah. They had people talking about like residue analysis. They had people talking about like case endings for Aramaic words. They had people talking about like excavation practices, they had, like all this stuff. It was all over. So during the 10 years, there was a guy um, based in Egypt who um, said that he made tons of stuff for Golan, including the Jehoash inscription, but he didn't come to Israel to testify. Uh, so this guy's name was Marco Samach Shukri Gratas, and he didn't come to Israel to testify. Some people, like one side said, well, it was his choice. He decided not to come. The other side said, no, the, the Egypt, he, he couldn't, it was visa issues. He couldn't come to Israel from Egypt, this whole thing. But even without him, we even without this guy that said, like, no, I made that. And so a lot of this stuff um, was purchased in the um, in the Palestinian territories because Israeli antiquities law doesn't apply there. But he says that he got it there. That's that's like there aren't like receipts because you don't get receipts for things that you buy on the black market. Oh, no. Turns out, um, and huh. so that like there are all of these the like, politics are getting involved, like tons of politics are getting involved. But like the trial stretched over more than one hundred hearings and twelve thousand pages of transcripts, and like amazing, <laughs> like it's it's amazing. Um, and the, it just the makes final me tired thinking yeah, the, about it. The like, final ugh. ruling is 
like 475 pages. Um, and it's all in Hebrew. So if anybody wants to read it to me, <laughs> that would be nice because I can't read Hebrew. Um, but so what came of it? Um, so sort of what came out through external evaluation and um, testimonies and things is that the ossuary itself is real. So that there was this Yaakov bar Yosef um, ossuary, but the like bro of Jesus part was added later. Okay. Um, and so the the sign is that so patina is this like, coating that gets on stuff um, <laughs> that like and it yeah, only. Like- for example, the the Statue of Liberty is covered with patina because the copper has oxidized. Right. And so anything exposed to air and the things in air for a long time develops patina. The inscription doesn't have even patina on it. The the brother of Jesus is new. Somebody took it and then tweaked it and tweaked it to make it invaluable. So all of this comes out and the finding was not guilty. So he was acquitted. What? Um, yeah. He, so, right. Oh yeah. Right. Twist. Not guilty. But the judge was careful to say that he was not saying that all these things were real, that they were all authentic or that he, that Golan and his uh, fellow antiquities dealers were stand up guys. Like he wasn't saying any of that. All he was saying, this is why it took 475 pages, uh, is that all he was saying was that the prosecution failed to prove beyond reasonable doubt that the items were forgeries and with them he had defrauded customers. So the, the James Ossuary is just sort of a, uh, it's, yeah, so it's, yeah. It's sort of a no- not fake fake. <laughs> right, yeah. And if it is fake, um whether the the motive was to reinforce a narrative uh, to which the forger subscribed, whether he was trying to like push, like whether he was because this, you see this happen often among people that believe in something, they will they will fake something, even though they they believe it's real, they will will do something that's not real to try to convince people, and it's a it's a sort of a counterintuitive process. Yeah. Um, so. Is, is it because of that or is it to cynically profit off of people who do believe like the the guys up in Cardiff? Um, either way, it kind of makes sense. Like you can kind of see it um, like it stands to reason. Um, but even if it is a fake and for whatever reason, and even if it's just a coincidence that the Talpiot family had the same trendy Palestinian Jewish names as Jesus family did, like even if those things are the case, they, like nothing has been proven that it doesn't exist. Because you can't prove something doesn't exist. And so um, there are so many people that cling to this being real because they are afraid that saying it's not real means that it couldn't be real. Like saying that that isn't the family is not the same thing as saying that family doesn't exist. Yeah. Uh, and and so when the stakes are high and you know somebody's faith, especially like a deep and abiding faith, um, those are pretty high stakes. So folks, uh. huh. <laughs> That was a complicated one. Right? Uh, this one is significantly less complicated. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, this one, at least, like, mine wasn't murdery. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we're going to we're gonna um, wind it up here with a little bit more of a lighthearted one. So this is the story of the Oklahoma runestones. So pack your raven, climb okay. in your longboat, and join me in western Oklahoma. And the city of Hevner. So just outside the city limits in what is now a protected state park, there is a massive rock. Hmm? I thought there were runes. 
Like Vikings, right? Mm-hmm. In Oklahoma? Mm-hmm. Oh, I see where this is going. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> okay, okay. So just outside the city of Hevner, <laughs> in what is now a protected state park, oh. there's a massive rock, 20 feet high, 12 across, uh, and it used to be known as the Indian Rock, but is now thought by many to be a monument created by Vikings. Oh. In Oklahoma. So the Indian Rock was a little-known curiosity until a girl named Gloria Farley from Hevner visited the site in 1928, and she became fascinated with the carvings on the rock, and she returned as an adult in 1951, determined to solve its mysteries. And her research, and that of the scholars she helped bring to Hevner, was aimed at proving Vikings had inscribed runes into the sandstone in the 11th century. Whoa! <laughs> Whoa, That's indeed. A jump. So, what are runes? Runes are letters in a set of related alphabets called runic alphabets. And these were used to write various Germanic languages before the adoption of the Latin alphabet. That's the one we use. um, And then for specialized purposes thereafter. So, there are Scandinavian variants that are known as futhark. And it's derived from the first six letters of their alphabet. So, that would be like if we called our alphabet absodif. Well, that's a foodark. Foodark. Because yep. that yeah, it's it's that it's a vel, not a fell. I know, so when you see it's a it's a rune called a thorn, and when you see things like ye oldie shoppy, yeah. the the thorn is that Y. So actually it genuinely is spell, spelling the. Yeah. But uh, most people tend to not know that and pronounce it as yeah. ye. Foodark. Yeah. So the earliest real runic inscriptions date to the second century BCE, and then uh, runes were replaced by Latin alphabet between 700 and 1100 BCE. Hmm. So it it just, it took that much time to sort of cross Europe. Much like we talked about in our discussion of um, inscriptions on the Rosetta Stone in episode four, the angular shapes of runes are, are shared with most contemporary alphabets of that period that are used for carving things on wood or stone. So, and especially in, in runes, um, which were often carved on, on planks or sticks of wood, there are no horizontal strokes because when you're carving on wood, horizontal is against the grain and more likely to split the wood and screw everything up. It's not so hard on stone, but. Oh, that's um, so, oh, what a fun fact. Yeah. So runes are for the most part, vertical up and down strokes or diagonal, but there's no horizontal. Because it's better suited to wood. Mm Mm-hmm. Ah. Yeah. Okay, so back to Oklahoma. (laughs) Sorry. So the the Smithsonian (laughs) Institution identified the eight characters carved onto the Indian stone or the, the Oklahoma rune stone as Scandinavian and interpreted them as Gnomedal or Gnome. Yeah, so like gnome, like gnome. And, and doll. So I, I saw three different translations of gnome doll, um, which is spelled with a G, G-N-O-M-E, and then gnome D-A-L. Um, it's either Valley of the Gnomes okay. or Sundial okay. or possibly Monument Valley. But then also this article that I read um, said it could also be G gnome doll, as in an inscription of someone's name. Well, I so know like, which one I want it to be. George Gnomedahl? I don't know. So um, in 2015, a guy named Henrik Williams 
who's a professor in Nordic languages at the University of Uppsala in Sweden. He visited the, the stone and said that it was probably 19th century with a 20% probability of it being 10th or 11th century. So, hey, 20% probability. And he says <laughs> that... I'm reading the quote. <laughs> He says, all words have endings back 1,500 years ago, and that is one thing we find disturbing. <laughs> so there is, no, there is no ending on the word in the Hevner runestone. Um, none of the American inscriptions, because there are other ones um, also in Oklahoma and, and elsewhere in that area. So none of the American inscriptions ever have any kind of layout or ornamentation, and that doesn't really fit the pattern of traditional runestones. And he also noted that there are no Vikings or early inscriptions on Iceland or Greenland, so it's a big jump from Sweden to Hevner. So, sure. did Vikings somehow land in Oklahoma? Nope. <laughs> Almost certainly not. But there are several theories about how the runestone and uh, and its counterparts uh, came to be. So some speculate that the runestone was carved by someone on the French explorer La Salle's expedition in the 17th century, um, or by a Swedish captain some at some point during the period of 18th century French colonization of the area. Um, although why a French person would be carving in Scandinavian runes, I don't know. It makes more sense for, like, in that scenario it makes more sense for it to be the swedish guy anyway still others believe the rock may be a hoax created by a 19th century scandinavian farmer skeptics point out that there are no other remaining artifacts of vikings in oklahoma <laughs> although similar runestones have been found in poto shawnee and tulsa i mean there is a, a neat upside to this story which is that authentic or not the runestone and the area around it were incorporated into a 50 acre state park in 1970 so that little girl who visited the stone, Gloria Farley, and, and became devoted to it. Her dedication to preserving the runestone subsequently protected the surrounding beautiful cliffs of Poteau Mountain. Poteau? Oh, yeah. Which? Poteau. Poteau. Yeah. And, Which is yeah, very much and the real. the forest around it. Yeah. Yeah, the environment's real. So, yeah. well gnomes done protecting now. that. Yeah. Yeah. And all the gnomes are safe now. So, here's why it actually makes total sense that somebody in Oklahoma in, in the 1800s would have carved massive runes into a boulder. And it's actually a little more complicated than a hoax. It might actually have something to do less with fooling people, but rather an expression of the Viking revival, which is a cultural, a cultural <laughs> phenomenon that occurred for a hot minute in the 18th and early 19th centuries. So, Oh, not all of a like sudden, black metal? I actually really enjoy like medieval slash Viking themed melodic metal but that's just me i learned something about you every day <laughs> that's what i wrote a lot of my dissertation to it's to really on, really i was just like oh man <laughs> no 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 it um it's really good writing music interesting so the viking revival uh -huh. 18th and 19th centuries all of a sudden people in scandinavia and people of scandinavian slash nordic descent rediscovered their history and so this began with historical discoveries and some early modern publications dealing with Old Norse culture in the 16th century. Okay. And then in 1867, the first Viking ship to be unearthed, the Toon ship, which <laughs> I think actually might be pronounced Tuna, <laughs> which 
I don't know if tune ship or tuna ship is better. I love them both very much. Um, but it was excavated in Norway and the ship, uh, provided all this new knowledge about the Vikings and their culture that had been lost to history. And so the excavation of other ships and artifacts following this led to this, um, higher consciousness and presence of, of knowledge about the Viking past in Norway. And then, uh, it sort of spread outwards from there. And also the only complete Viking helmet ever to be found, there weren't any horns on it because they didn't wear horns on their helmets was also excavated in Norway. Um, the word Viking yeah. was introduced into modern English during the 18th century, at which point it, uh, sort of acquired these romanticized heroic overtones. So, Etymologists frequently trace the word to references to those who set about raiding and pillaging, but the word Viking in the sense that it's used now is derived from the Old Norse word vikinger, um, pretty similar, which is signifying a sea rover or a pirate. So so if you, you go a Viking, you go... Sea rover sounds so benign. I know, a sea rover. Sounds like, like, a, like a Labrador retriever. Go get it. <laughs> okay i don't know i really like old norse language things just because oh and that's it's ironic that i said that because my favorite part is that they called their their meetings things oh like, i got i gotta go to a thing oh. like the, the big like meetings that they made to yeah. to like make decisions about things oh i can't i can't use the so, word thing so our um on our last episode when we were talking about the uh like gender and gendered stuff and burials oh, our, our viking lady tactician yeah so would she, she be uh tacticianing at of thing yeah she would have led things nice, nice. i know i know it's a good word so this Vikingness, the idea of Vikingness and connection to these historic Vikings really acquired this, I'm going to use the word patina again. It acquired this patina of of romanticism and and heroics. And so we see it in the music of the German composer Richard Wagner. Mm -hmm. Um, Despite his unfortunate uh, views on religious tolerance, he he definitely has strong influences of the Nordic mythology in his musical pieces. And so if you are listening to the the very famous Ride of the Valkyries, that's inspired by Nordic mythology and elements of Germanic mythology. Um, so those rune stones, the carvings, may indeed be meant to fool people, but I think they are a little bit more than that. I think they are kind of an expression of some of this if it especially if this area was originally um, populated by people of scandinavian descent the farmers in this area in the 1800s i think maybe it's a little bit more likely that this was sort of um an attribution of vikingness to themselves Mm -hmm. even if it was just completely false and and silly yeah um so this is uh, this is another one of those like hoax. Yeah. Question okay. mark. Well, great. These Goodness were gracious. these were good. Yeah, there was a, a little bit of everything. Yeah, yeah, because I and also like a hoax is never just a hoax because no. there's always a lot going into why someone would believe it in the first place and why someone would feel compelled to do something that is not as authentic as it 
presents itself to be. Yeah. Because people yeah, are complicated. So we sure are. Avril Lavigne had it right. <laughs> um, so yeah, that is our back to school hoax special. We had some history, we had some intrigue, some highs and lows, and we hope that we have primed your brain for the start of the new school year. Or if you are a lifelong learner like we are, then we just hope we've laid some fun knowledge on you. And thank you as always for listening. Yeah, thanks. If you want to keep listening to us, you can find us on SoundCloud on Apple Podcasts and wherever fine podcasts are found elsewhere. Uh, and you can find us on Facebook at The Dirt Podcast. On Twitter, we're at Dirt Podcast. And on Instagram, we're at The Dirt Pod. And all of those social medias sort of funnel into our website, thedirtpod.com. If you'd like to uh, tell us about hoaxes that you've experienced or... Or you've perpetrated, I guess, you criminals. Yeah. Oh, tell us that. Give us the juicy hoax stories. You can email us at thedirtpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. Yeah. We will talk to you next week. Take Bye. Care. Bye. Bye.